This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 160, Preconceptions. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in. We talked about standing up straight in the posture episode last week, but stand where and for how long? Using our best judgment is critical, but sometimes what we call best judgment is simply what comes easiest. That may be simplistic and even counterproductive. This week we will discuss the dangers of thinking too much, the real differences, if any, between rich and poor, a new and perhaps horrifying vision of pizza, and the value of a good box cover. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Behold, I thought... Those three words from 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 11, I think, are the keys to the whole name and story. And after a fashion, a key to the whole story of man's interaction with God, or failed interaction, if you prefer. Behold, I thought. When it comes down to it, if we're honest with ourselves, we're thinking too much. And I hope you understand what I mean by that. I don't mean that the thought process itself, which God blessed us with, is contrary to our spiritual interests. That somehow being smart is a curse instead of a blessing. Wisdom is a good thing. Solomon lines that out for us in Ecclesiastes quite well. But there are limits to our ability to properly process spiritual truths. And sometimes when the choice is between thinking and believing, we need to be prepared to believe. Naaman's story tells us about the problems that we can get into when we make too many assumptions, when we come into a setting that we're unfamiliar with and presume that it's going to go a certain way, when in fact we just don't know what we're talking about. At the very beginning of the story, when Naaman hears about a prophet in Israel, he doesn't go to the prophet, you remember. He goes to the king. You have a prophet in your land, certainly he's going to do what the king tells him to do, so the natural thing to do is to go to the king and tell him to Tell his prophet to hop to it. That's not the way it works in spiritual realms, or at least it shouldn't work that way. We love the attitude that the apostles take in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. I certainly hope we do, at least, where they look their leaders in the eye and say, we must obey God rather than men. Elisha is willing to help Naaman, of course, but not because the king told him to do it, but rather because it's a work of God and he is a worker of the things of God. When Naaman shows up, and Elisha won't even go out to greet Naaman, Naaman is horribly offended. After all, he is a visiting dignitary from a nation that, at the moment anyway, is dominating the nation of Israel. He's a leper, and I suppose that it is understood that he is going to be treated poorly from time to time because of this horrible affliction. But Elisha won't even look him in the eye. He won't even come out of his house. Go wash in the Jordan River. We can get offended, too when we don't receive the kind of treatment that we think we deserve. But the bottom line is, it's not the prophet's job, it's not the preacher's job to make sure our feelings don't get hurt. I'm not one of these preachers that deliberately hurts people's feelings. I know those preachers exist, and I think they are wrong in feeling that way. But at the same time, it's not my job to preserve people's feelings either. It's my job as a preacher to teach the truth. Remember the prophet Balaam, who was perhaps more famous for his failures than his successes, but nevertheless had glimmers of insight from time to time. In Numbers 23, verse 12, and in other passages also, looking Balak, the king, in the eye, who is trying to buy a prophecy, essentially, he replied, Must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? 
Our Heavenly Father does not inspire me in the same way that he inspired Balaam or so many other prophets of old. But it essentially amounts to the same thing when I'm given the inspired word in written form. My job is to read God's word and to share God's word with those who will listen. It may or may not be a popular kind of thing. That's not the priority, though. Naaman thought someone else was going to do all the work. Why should I go wash in the river? I thought the prophet was going to come and wave his hand over the leprous area and and I'd be healed that way. Sometimes we get kind of lazy, which is kind of strange. If we are in danger of losing our soul, spending an eternity in hell, surely anything that we could do to fix that would be welcome. And in fact, Naaman's servant is going to make an argument similar to that a few verses later. But in the moment, Naaman refuses to do anything of this nature. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 tells us different, that we're supposed to be prepared to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We believe that there are things that we are expected to do, and we are eager to do them, in fact. We're eager to do whatever God asks of us, because we realize the consequences of not acting. He believed that the answer was going to make sense. What's so special about the Jordan River? And let's be fair, nothing special about the Jordan River. I could have stayed home and washed in a river. Why would I bother coming to the prophet for this? Well, we need to get used to this. The answer that God gives us to our spiritual quandaries oftentimes is not going to make sense. I wonder if God set it up that way deliberately so that we would be forced to trust in him rather than trust in our own wisdom. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God wants to look foolish after a fashion in the eyes of the world. It forces sinful people to trust in him rather than trusting in themselves. And one other point, Naaman clearly assumed that proper healing would be expensive. When he is healed, he is so grateful he's willing to pay through the nose. And Elisha refuses to take his money. He refuses to be paid at all. Elisha's servant, Gehazi, does not have those compunctions and is going to wind up being punished as a result of that. But nevertheless, it's natural to assume, especially if you're going to accept the idea of working out your own salvation, that salvation is an expensive kind of thing. And in a sense, it is. It's going to cost you everything after all. But in a very real sense, grace is free. The free gift of God, it's called in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. No matter what God asks of us, no matter what he requires of us, being saved by grace is always going to give the credit to our Heavenly Father, to his grace, to his love, rather than anything we accomplished for ourselves. Does that boggle your mind? It boggles mine from time to time. But again, we're coming back to the idea of thinking too much. Trust in what God says about salvation. Accept it as truth. Put it to work in your life as best you can. God will work out all the details. This is what I've been reading. Another thought or two about The Prince and the Pauper from Mark Twain. It's fascinating that a rich person and a poor person could be confused with one another. That's the entire conceit of the book, of course. And we touched on this thought a little bit last week. The idea of the essential similarity between human beings especially when you see us as creations of the creator, that we are the ones made after his image, certainly imperfect in our application of his principles, imperfect in our behavior, but all of us essentially children of Adam, 
If similarity to our Heavenly Father is the way that we ultimately define ourselves, surely one sinner is not significantly different than another sinner. We have far more in common with one another in our wretched state than we have in common with God. I am not a social leveler, and I don't believe the Bible wants me to be. There are certainly plenty of stories about rich people getting what's coming to them and poor people getting what's coming to them in a spiritual sense, but not because of economic realities, because of spiritual realities. There is a sense in which rich people tend to think that they are better than anybody else. There is a sense in which poor people may think that they are not as good as anybody else. Those are flawed perceptions on our part. And when we see stories like the rich man and Lazarus, for instance, in Luke chapter 16, when we see criticism of an attitude of favoritism in James chapter 2, we see rich people getting what's coming to them in James chapter 5, and on and on we could go. When we see these stories, this is not a matter of God saying, you rich people live it up for now, but you're going to get what's coming to you sooner or later. That's not what the first shall be last and the last shall be first means. Because ultimately, when we're measuring ourselves by carnal standards, money, power, wealth, whatever, those aren't the standards that God uses for us. God sees the heart. God sees the spirit. God sees faith or a lack thereof. It's not that poor people are are going to get a leg up in the afterlife because they had a really tough time here. God is saying that he doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about social standing. He cares about faith. And if you live your life as a poor person in faith, or as a rich person in faith as far as that goes, if you trust in God's ability to save you from this imperfect world and transfer you into the perfect kingdom of his beloved son, then you show yourself to be his kind of person, regardless of how much money you have or do not have. The struggle here, I think, especially when it comes to judging our fellow man, is that we have a tendency, a very strong tendency almost irresistible at times, to judge one another based on what people can do for me. That's how people of the world, people of a carnal sensibility, look at their neighbors. The one who cooks really well and brings me leftovers. The one who has power tools and is willing to loan them to me. The one who can babysit my kids or watch my dog when I'm out of town, something along those lines. We like those people. And therefore, we value those people. They have something to offer. But we don't have anything to offer God. How can we possibly enrich God? He values us, in a nutshell, based on who He is, rather than who we are. And we can learn to do the same thing if we work at it. It's difficult, but it is a skill that we can acquire. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, and verse number 12 and following, Whenever you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor wealthy neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you to a meal in return, and that will be your repayment. But whenever you give a banquet, invite people who are poor, who have disabilities, who are limping, and people who are blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I think there's a bigger point involved here than simply who you do or do not have as dinner guests. It's talking about how you view your fellow man. Is this someone who can offer me something? And because of that, I will offer him something and get a fair exchange of services, as it were. Or am I willing to serve simply because I'm a servant? Because I'm someone who values human beings based on who I am, 
rather than based on what they can do for me. If we can love like God loves, if we can extend selflessly, and you need to look no further than the cross to see how that works, then we can become Christ-like. We can become partakers in the love of God, show ourselves to truly be children of God, being remade from the inside out through the power of Jesus Christ. It's probably too much to ask that the entire world come over to this way of thinking. But if I can't fix it in the world, at least I can fix it in me. I can become the kind of person who genuinely does not care about money, does not care about reputation, who simply cares about the things of God. That's not too high a bar to cross. This is what I've been hearing. I think I scarred for life some of my social media acquaintances out there a couple of weeks ago when I noted that my wife Tracy had taken to making pizza for the family that had grapes on it. I'd never heard of such a thing. Pineapple, eh, I can take or leave pineapple. Certainly not opposed to it. A lot of people are, though. Pineapple does not belong on pizza. Okay, well, whatever. If you take that kind of attitude toward pineapple, I can only imagine how you're taking this segment. But you know what? I'm relatively adventurous as far as food goes. I'll try virtually anything. A lot of recipes that Tracy had found with grapes going on pizza. All right, let's give it a shot. She made one of a pesto kind of nature. There was a barbecue chicken one. And I got to tell you, it was pretty good. Now, I'll grant you, we're talking about my wife's cooking, which not only am I contractually obligated to like, I actually do like. Whatever she puts in front of me is, generally speaking, going to be good, and quite often it's going to be very good. So there's that. If you're not similarly blessed, my sympathies. But the idea that it couldn't possibly be a good thing simply because it has one particular ingredient in a context that doesn't seem to fit That's more of a commentary on our preconceptions, on our ideas of what ought to be. Now, don't get me wrong. If you are just as horrified at the idea of grapes on pizza right now as you were five minutes ago, by all means, eat your pizza without grapes. No skin off my nose. I don't care one way or the other. But I would like us to back up a little bit and talk about the idea of what does and does not belong in certain contexts. And ask ourselves, who's really being served? Who are we trying to impress? The proper answer, of course, always, is God. And I would like to think that most, if not all, of my listeners are going to go along with that. If you're trying to submit to God, that means doing His thing all the time. As it so happens, God doesn't seem to care whether you put grapes on your pizza. And so, therefore, I can't afford to get terribly dogmatic about this. I don't want to fight a battle that God doesn't want me to fight. Not only is it lifting up some carnal, pointless thing to a spiritual level, it's also sapping my strength for the battles that I need to be fighting. So submit to God's laws, obviously. Do what God tells you to do. To a very large extent, though, we are going to want to submit to culture. We want to blend in. We want to fit with our neighbors. And that's not an entirely wasted concept. I don't want to stand out any more than I have to either. I like to think 
that if we get the God submission right first, then we're going to know from time to time that we can't afford to blend in with our culture. But if that's your goal, if you're willing to submit to your culture, fit in as it were, then you know maybe grapes on pizza is not for you. And judging from the comments that I got on social media, it almost certainly is not for you. But here's the thing. If you're trying to find joy and peace and pleasure as God allows you to do so on your own terms, obviously on God's terms, but assuming that we are okay with God, if your source of satisfaction is simply in finding something that you like, then do what you like. Don't allow other people to dictate to you and rob you of something that you might actually care for. You may not be the kind of person who challenges your regular way of thinking. You may not like breaking out of norms. But I would suggest to you, whether or not you put grapes on your pizza, that rethinking the way that you do things is an inherently healthy thing. Reevaluating your priorities, reevaluating your approaches to things, things far more important than pizza. And yes, this is me saying it. There are things that are far more important than pizza. If we get in the habit of approaching things that seem to be status quo, things that seem to be appropriate in perhaps every circumstance, and reevaluate things, relook at things, challenge our presuppositions, we may find a better way of living our life. We may find a better way of serving our family. We may even find a better way of serving the people of God and serving God himself. Most of us know the context in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Where Paul writes, starting in verse 19, For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all, that I may gain more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I may gain Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I might gain those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, I became as one without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might gain those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might gain the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by all means save some. The way that you approach spiritual realities on this particular day may not be the best approach. There may be a better way. Not because you have changed, but because your circumstances have changed, because your audience has changed. If there's a better way of doing this, if there's a more effective way of accomplishing the things that you want to accomplish, then why wouldn't we want to do that? And again, ultimately, what we want to do is serve God first and then serve our neighbors. We find the best way of doing that, and then we do it. And if it means shaking things up a little bit, if it means putting two things together that ordinarily we wouldn't have put together, we're okay with that because there's a bigger goal in mind than simply sticking to what works. Ultimately, of course, sound doctrine is going to have to restrain us. As Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the good doctrine which you've been following. We always follow after God's words. That ought to go without saying, but we'll say it anyway. But if we can restrain ourselves by God's words, and then within the liberty that he grants us within those words, find the best approach to whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether it's our own work, whether it's our dealings with our neighbors, whether it's worship, If we can remain a little bit flexible on that, we may find ourselves drawing even closer to God than we were before. This is what I've been playing. I suspect very strongly that the person who came up with the cliche, don't judge a book by its cover, 
was speaking back in a day when book covers were very, very generic. If Mary Shelley had written her book and entitled it Frankenstein, and all we see is Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, how could you possibly know what that book is? It would be silly to try to judge a book by its cover under the circumstances like that. You might have some general information. For instance, if there had been other books with Frankenstein in the title, which was not the case, of course, or other books written by Mary Shelley, which there was not. But if it's just a name and a title, putting a judgment on something like that is silly and pointless. But if you can judge a book by its cover, I guarantee you can judge a board game by its cover. And in fact, you're encouraged to do so. If I'm shopping online, usually it is because the online store in question is advertising a huge, huge sale. I'm all about the sales. Hal Hammonds, famous tightwad, good to meet you. But if there are a hundred games on sale, I'm not going to spend my entire day doing research, plumbing the depths of what these games are offering me. I'm going to look, I'm going to evaluate, I'm going to move on. It either goes in the shopping cart or far more often than not, it will not. It is very, very easy for me to rule games out based on the cover. I can tell that it's about a theme that we are not going to enjoy. Goofy-looking title, I will absolutely exclude a game because of its title. I can certainly exclude it because of the artwork. If I'm going to spend half an hour, an hour, two hours looking at a game, I don't want to be repulsed. And I don't have to be repulsed, because in the modern world, there's just too many good-looking games out there for me to spend time looking at an ugly game. Now, I could be wrong. It could be a great game, except it's ugly. I know games like that. I own games like that. But why should I invest myself in something that does not seem to be investing itself in me? Art is a thing on not just board game covers, but dishwashing detergent and on and on we can go. And it's certainly that way to a certain extent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm certainly not suggesting that It's all about bells and whistles. It's all about presentation. It's all about the cover, if you will, that we put on. But let's not underestimate the importance of presentation. We live in a world characterized by sin. And sinful people, generally speaking, are satisfied in their sinful state. If they were wanting to work their way out of it, they would have done so by now. Most of them need a reason to listen to the gospel. Most of them need convincing. And that means when I come to them with the gospel, it has to look good. Again, we're not suggesting here that we lie, but we are emphasizing that it would be advantageous for us to emphasize that coming to Jesus is a good idea. And of course, the best way we can do this is with a smile on our face to show that Jesus is making a positive impact. I am better off. I am happier in the short term and certainly in the long term because I am a Christian. I emphasize the joy in my life, the peace in my heart, the hope that I have of heaven. We sometimes talk about cover stories in a negative kind of sense. We are trying to cover up a bad situation by giving a cover story, something that is inherently deceptive. We're certainly not talking about that. We're not talking about hiding the truth. 
And by no means are we talking about disguising or distorting the truth. But there is a sense in which the gospel has a cover story, a first presentation, a first appearance. We need to make sure that when we talk to our neighbors about Jesus Christ, we are not being arrogant. We're not being hypocritical. We're not being closed-minded. We're not being selfish. Things that Christians routinely are accused of, and perhaps with some cause. We need to make sure that we are not satisfied with simply having truth. Remember 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We're not saying that knowledge is bad. Knowledge is good. But if you have the option of approaching a sinner and emphasizing knowledge, or approaching a sinner and emphasizing love, choose love every time. I don't mean to imply that you have to have one or the other, but lead with love. If we show that we genuinely care about our neighbors, if we show that this is an emotional investment that we have made and that we're glad that we have made, if we show ourselves to be recreated in a positive way, in an obvious way, in the image of Jesus Christ, perhaps we'll be able to put ourselves in a position where someone sees that and values that and maybe even envies that, and they're willing to pick the board game up. They're willing to take a look at it more carefully, do some investigation. Far better that, surely, than to simply be the right choice. And anybody with any common sense would say it's the right choice. And then when someone chooses poorly, well, we didn't expect anything better out of them anyway. Loving your neighbor requires us to be more invested than that. You can call it putting on a good show. You can call it putting on a good front, whatever. What it really is, is putting on Jesus. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.